All right, so our, our goal tonight is to get a clear picture of God. Here's the thing, you know, the story of the Exodus, the, the main character. We often think of Moses, we think of the Israelites, we think of Pharaoh, but the main character in the book of Exodus is God. He, he is the main player, and he is the one that is at work. And so our goal tonight in looking at the story is just to get a clearer picture of who he is and what he's like. And we're going to pick up our story right where we left off last week. If you're here last week, you remember uh, we got just barely through chapter 3, and the Israelites, this, this uh, select group of people that were people of a promise, and they were in bondage, and they're crying out to God. And at the end of chapter 2, we have this picture of them groaning and crying out to God. And it says that God hears their cries, hears their groans, and he remembers his promise and he's concerned for them. And I, I just, I think this is the, the place we need to start tonight because it gives us this picture of God and how he responds to his people. I mean, have you ever wondered, like, how in the world does God decide, like, how and when to answer a prayer? Like, what does God base his response to prayer upon? And I love this picture of God because it doesn't say that God heard the cries and the groans of the Israelites and then he remembered all of the good things that they had done and all of their merit with him and all of their favor with him and he decided to act. No. In fact, Israel had really done nothing for God at this point. Like literally, Israel did not even have a, a formalized religion with which to relate to God through. Like all they had was a promise that had been passed down for seven generations about this God that had made a promise to them. They had no other way to understand who God was or to relate to him, and they've done nothing to earn his favor, but God remembers his promise. He, he remembers his promise and he responds. He has concern and compassion. This is a picture of our God. You see, God responds not because of the merit of the Israelites. He responds because it's just part of his character to be faithful. Like this is just part of who God is. It's like impossible for God to not be faithful. It's so central to his identity. God remembers his promise, this word that he spoke, this covenant he entered into, and he responds because he remembers. But it's even better than that. It's not just that he's faithful. It's not like he's this God that has to act out of compulsion because that's just how he is. But no, he remembers and he has a heart. He has concern and he shows compassion for his people. God is faithful, he's steadfast, he's unchanging, He is constant, he is reliable. God is faithful and this is the picture that we're longing to see of God tonight as we work through this dramatic story of the Exodus. The first place that we're going to see this picture of God's faithfulness. We're going to see that God is not going to allow anything, there's no obstacle that could stand in the way of God carrying out his faithfulness. And the first place that we see this is with Moses. You remember last week when Moses was at this burning bush that God speaks to him and he gives him this directive. And we're going to see a lot in the way that Moses responds. I love it. God tells Moses, he says, listen, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I don't know if you remember last week, but the first time that Moses gets his eyes upon God speaking to him. It's in chapter 3, verse 6. It says that Moses hides his face because he's afraid of God. He has this fear of the Almighty. And if that, if that phrase or that term is kind of weird, this idea of fearing God, if that's weird to you, I just really encourage, if you weren't here, to go back and listen to Dave's sermon from two weeks ago. It's on the website and the podcast because he unpacked this idea of the fear of God. But basically it's this, is that when God is, is in the rightful place on the throne of our lives, 
When we understand the reverence, the fear, and the awe that he deserves, all other fears and all other threats go to the sidelines. And so here's Moses. He sees God and he is afraid. He like hides his face. He is humbled before God. And then God says, Moses, I'm going to send you. And I love the first words out of Moses' mouth. He says, who am I? God, who, who am I that you would, you would send me? I'm, are you sure? You see, up to this point in Moses' life, pretty much all of his ambitions have been dashed on the rocks. Moses looks at himself as God says, Moses, I want to send you. And Moses says, God, I, are you sure of me? Like, God, I, I'm a murderer. I'm a failure. I've, I've done nothing but shepherd my father-in-law's sheep for the last 40 years. God, God, are you sure of me? I mean, God, I I can't speak well. I'm not a good public speaker. Like, I'm going to mess this up. Are you sure I'm the one that you want? And I love what we see in this is because none of these insufficiencies that we see in Moses, none of them disqualify him from serving God. And it's because of the posture of his heart. When he encounters God, he is humble before him. And he's humble before the Lord. There's so many things that we could say here about our hearts before God as we see ourselves in Moses. You know, Moses' insufficiencies do not disqualify him from God's promises. Hear that really clearly. You know, we're not all Moses. We're not all going to have this crystal clear burning bush moment, but we can all see ourselves in Moses. And what God does with Moses is, Moses, your insufficiencies do not disqualify you from participating in the promise. We need to hear that, right? I mean, all of us, we come to God fully aware of our own insufficiencies, our own weaknesses, our own setbacks. But God says, no, these do not disqualify you. I was thinking about how this works in my family. I've got three kids, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a five-month-old. And just a couple weeks ago, my my parents have this boat, and we were out on the boat, and we like to, we wake surf behind this boat, and my six-year-old went out, and he wanted to try it, and did it with me, but my four-year-old, I could tell he kind of wanted to, but he was scared, I mean, he's four, you know, he's like, he's like this tall, so he's kind of scared to get in the water. He felt, he he was fully aware of how small he was, he was full aware of how big this lake is, and that it could swallow him up, and the, the boats that are going all around, and he was scared to death, and I didn't look at him and say, oh, that's right, you little chicken, you just stay in the boat then, I'll talk to you, I didn't do that. I said, Torin, you can do this and I'm going to be with you. Come on, bud. He put on a life jacket. I put it on him, and I pulled him into the water with me. He laid down on my chest. I showed him what we had to do to get started. I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. You want to keep going? "Uh, Yeah, I think so, Dad. We can do it. Okay, I'll keep doing that if you'll stay out here with me. So we laid down on my chest and held onto the rope, and then together we get up on the surfboard, and my four-year-old is standing up between my legs, and it was so amazing. He's just going, like he's like holding on to my legs as we're surfing behind my dad's boat. He was just having a blast. You see, because Torin's insufficiencies, his weaknesses, his smallness, they did not disqualify him from joining in on what the family was doing together. God looks at us and he says, hey, your insufficiencies, your weaknesses, your failures, they don't disqualify you from coming and playing in God's family and from being a part of the plans that he has for you. What he asks for is for our hearts to be humble before him. It's what we see in Moses, and that's why God invites him in. Now, Moses was afraid because he couldn't speak well, so God says, hey, you can't speak well, fine. Get your brother Aaron and get him to go with you, and he will be your mouthpiece. You tell him what to say, and Aaron will speak with you. So what we see happening next 
Moses and Aaron are sent to Pharaoh, and by the time we get over to chapter 5, they're getting ready to confront Pharaoh for the first time. So, so look over in chapter 5. We're going to see such a contrast of a response in Pharaoh from what we saw in Moses. This is chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. And he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, listen to these words, who is the Lord? Who's the Lord that I, I, Pharaoh, should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And then they said, oh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And the Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. And that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy, and that is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Do you see the difference in Pharaoh's response to God and Moses? Moses' first words are, God, who am I? Pharaoh's first words are, who are you, Lord? Who, are, who is the Lord? Who are you, Lord? You think I should listen to you? Immediately we see this heart in this man, Pharaoh, this heart that is arrogant and proud, full of evil and indignation towards God. Where Moses feared God, Pharaoh seemed to think that God should fear him. And not only does Pharaoh not, not, uh, not go along with God, he does not comply with God, but he turns up the heat. He makes the oppression even stronger on God's people. I was trying to think of like, how do we even like comprehend the level of meanness and wickedness that we see in this guy, Pharaoh? And I, I, another story, a made-up story, a pretend story about my son, Torn. He, he goes to preschool. He's four years old, so he goes to preschool two days a week. Could you imagine, just imagine with me that one day Torn comes home to me and his face is scratched and his hair's all tousled, his clothes are torn, and he tells me that he's still hungry. And I'm like, what is going on, bud? And he's like, well, there's this bully in preschool who, who came up and he took my lunch. He wouldn't let me eat it, and he pushed me down. And, and, all this, and I'm like, what in the world? Like any concerned parent, I am going to do something about this. Like I'm going to call his teacher and say, hey, listen, I don't know what happened today, but apparently there's someone in Torn's class that's singling him out, that's mistreating him. Could you just keep an eye out tomorrow and make sure that nobody mistreats him? Could you imagine if Torn went to preschool the next day and as the class is getting started, the teacher stands up and says, hey, um, everybody, I just want to draw your attention to Torin. I want everyone to do your best to make Torin have a miserable day. Everyone pick on Torin today. Can you imagine? Like we're all going, that's a dumb story. But could you imagine? We think it's a dumb story because it would never happen. Like a teacher who cares for kids would never respond that way. And if we met a teacher that responded that way, we would say, what kind of special evil is this in this person that wants to single out a four-year-old like this? And yet here's Pharaoh. He's got this nation of people 
enslaved in his country, and God comes to him and says, hey, these are my people. You've been mistreating them. I want you to let them go. And Pharaoh says, let them go? Are you kidding me? Let me show you what I'm going to do, God. I'll show them they've, they've had it easy up till this point. And he turns up the heat and increases the amount of pain and suffering that they are under. This is a picture, a snapshot of what this guy, Pharaoh, is like. He's a very, very hard-hearted and arrogant man. But I love what we learn about God in this. You see, earlier in chapter 3, when God is sending Moses, in chapter 3, verse 19, God tells Moses, says, hey, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to talk to him. But he's like, hey, Moses, I know this king. I know him. I know what he's like. And uh, he is not going to respond. He is not going to comply. In fact, he's not going to respond unless uh, I move with a mighty hand against him to compel him to listen. You see, God knows Pharaoh. He knows what his heart is like. But look what he does. He comes to him. This is like what, just what they said in the video. He knows Pharaoh's hard heart, and yet God still comes and he gives him this chance. I mean, this is not the first time that we've seen God encounter the evil of humanity, right? If you've read the book of Genesis, the book that comes before Exodus, then you know that God has encountered evil in the heart of humanity before. And we know what he's capable of, that if he wanted to, he could have just squashed Pharaoh. I mean, he could have wiped out the Egyptians and just raised up the Israelites and led them out, but God doesn't do that. He comes to Pharaoh and he gives him this chance to comply with him. He gives him a chance to give God the glory and to let God's people go. But Pharaoh does not comply. And as Pharaoh refuses to comply with God, we're going to see this pattern that comes in. God knows that the only language that Pharaoh understands is the language of power. And so we're going to see God come in starting in chapter 7. And he's going to say, listen, I'm going to give Pharaoh some signs of my power. He says, Moses, I, I want you and Aaron to go. And I'm going to give Pharaoh some indications of the kind of power that, that I have. So look in chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. And Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians. And they also did these same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Look at verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. And what we're going to see is this pattern where God comes speaking Pharaoh's language. He says, okay, Pharaoh, I will give you a display of power. And it starts off this harmless display of power where they just take a staff and throw it on the ground and it turns into a snake. I mean, it doesn't hurt anybody, right? But we see that Pharaoh, you know, he gets these magicians and he calls them in and somehow, I don't fully understand, somehow they replicate this act and Pharaoh hardens his heart and he says, uh-uh, not going to do it, God. I'm not going to listen to anything you say. And so it kicks off this back and forth between God and Pharaoh. Well, God comes, gives a display of power. Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no way. Back and forth it goes. And we see these plagues. This is what the video talked about, these first five plagues, where God comes and begins each time increasing the display of his power and every time Pharaoh hardening his heart. And it's interesting, after the third plague, 
His magicians, who up till that point have been able to replicate everything Moses and Aaron do, after the third plague, it's like Aaron literally takes his staff onto the ground and the dust of the ground becomes gnats and like spreads all over the country. And the magicians are over there like trying to throw dust up in the air and it's all falling down and they're like, oh, we can't do this one, shoot. And they go, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, do you see what is happening here? He said, this is the finger of God. This is what they say. This is what the magicians say. It's in chapter 8, verse 19. They say, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is not some sleight of hand or some trick. This is the finger of God that's at work. I think we need to listen. But Pharaoh still hardens his heart. His heart becomes hard. And he will not listen to God despite these displays of power. And so this goes on for five plagues. Nile River turned into blood, frogs all over the place, people's kitchens and their beds, gnats and flies. Finally, livestock start dropping dead all over the place, and Pharaoh will not listen. And after the fifth plague, something changes. The video hit on this really well. You know, up until the fifth plague, we have seen Pharaoh's heart being hardened, but it's been Pharaoh that is doing the hardening. After the fifth plague, we're going to see the language change a little bit. It still will say that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but it's also going to add this phrase that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We're going to see the Lord start to harden Pharaoh's heart, and we're going to see an increase in the severity of the plagues. Let's start with this idea of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. This has been a difficult phrase for people to understand. Literally for centuries, people have been debating on what this means, that that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I am under... Uh, let's not pretend, I don't think tonight that I'm going to stand up here and somehow suddenly find the magic resolution to the centuries-old debate about what's going on here. But here's what I want us to see. No matter what people say, I want us to see, listen, God did not take a soft-hearted, kind individual and turn him wicked. God did not, he did not callous a previously tender heart. That's not what we get a picture of here. We have seen from the outset the kind of heart that Pharaoh has. He was a hard-hearted, arrogant, evil, wicked man. Many people argue that, hey, what happens with the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's unfair. It's unfair what happens after this because God is taking away Pharaoh's free will or his ability to repent and choose a different course. But here's the thing. Pharaoh, seven different times we see Pharaoh hardening his heart. Seven different times. Pharaoh has hardened his heart, and actually what we see happening, it's like God is saying to him, Pharaoh, you want a hard heart, I will let you have your hard heart. Pharaoh, if you want a hard heart, I will let you have the hard heart that you so desire. He is, in essence, preserving preserving Pharaoh's free will. He is reinforcing the choice that Pharaoh has already made. However, instead of allowing Pharaoh's hardened heart to result in the oppression of God's people and in the slandering of God's name, God is going to turn the tables and as a result of Pharaoh's hard heart, God is going to bring about the deliverance of his people and the glorification of his name. You see, God does not take someone who is completely innocent and turn them wicked. No, God takes someone who is already hardened towards God and he says, hey, if that's the way you want it, I will let you have it that way. And this is what's going to happen. And so the severity of the plagues begin to intensify. All of the Egyptian people break out in these boils, these like festering, nasty wounds all over their skin. 
We see a hailstorm come in that wipes out most of their crops and a lot of their livestock that was still alive from the previous um, plague. We see locusts come in and these locusts destroy all the crops that aren't wiped out with the hailstorm. And eventually God sends this darkness over the nation of Egypt, a darkness that lasts for three days. And it says it was a darkness that could be felt. And yet at the end of the 10th chapter, after all of these plagues, in verse 28, it said, Pharaoh said to Moses, chapter 10, get out of my sight and make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. I mean, this guy, he is, this gives us a whole new insight and the kind of ruler that he is. You know, up until these last five plagues, the people of Egypt have not been bothered that much. It has been inconvenient. There hasn't been much harm to the people. But now here's this ruler and the people that he's supposed to be ruling and governing and caring for are, are getting killed and getting wounded and hurt and still he has not softened his heart to what God wants him to do. Completely calloused toward his people and he tells Moses and Aaron, don't let me see your face again or I will have you killed. And so in chapter 11, the Lord comes to Moses and he says, hey Moses, this is what I'm going to do. Pharaoh's still not listening. Tonight, around midnight, I am going to move throughout Egypt and every firstborn son is going to die. Could you imagine what Moses like, felt as God said that to him? We know that Moses already feared the Lord. And now he's saying, listen, my very presence just is going to move through Egypt. And he's going to cause the death of every firstborn son in every single home. This is a difficult story for us to understand. Let's just name that. Like it, it's hard for us to understand this. We, we feel like it clashes a little bit with what we understand about God. Because we see, oh, there's so much death. And, and you know, and I, I do like what the video said. The video says, hey, this is, this is God pouring back upon Pharaoh, the very thing that Pharaoh had, had poured out upon the Israelites, right? I mean, Pharaoh had, after all, ordered not just the murder of the firstborn sons, but the murder of every single uh, baby boy that is born to the Israelites. I mean, it's, it's cold-hearted. And yet to say that this is just God taking vengeance, uh, still that makes some of us uncomfortable. So here's what I want us to see, is that this story is not just about death. It is not just about God killing firstborn sons in Egypt. No, God is not just bringing death. God is birthing something brand new in his people. God is bringing out something brand new in his people. You see, chapter 12 goes on to give this story. He says, Moses, there's a way out for the Israelites. And this is that story where they talked about the lamb being slain. He says, I want you to pick a lamb from your flock, kill it for your dinner tonight. And while you're doing that, I want you to get the blood of that lamb and smear it on your doorpost. And as I move through Egypt, I will pass over every single door that has the blood of the lamb on it, and death will not enter the homes of those marked by the blood of the lamb. And it's amazing to think about this, this, this ritual, this Passover feast that they celebrated. I mean, this is this new ritual that was born in this story, and literally for the past several thousand years, Israelite people, Jewish people even today, have been practicing this ritual. What we're seeing here is not just this movement of death. No, it is God giving birth to a new nation and a new ritual and a new culture, a nation that eventually would give birth to the one who brings the greatest hope that the world has ever known. We'll get to that in just a minute. 
You see, God is birthing something new, a ritual that is still celebrated today, a ritual that we actually celebrate every single week, just with a slight twist, and I'll talk about that in a minute as well. You see, it's not just about death. It is God giving birth to a new hope that the world did not even know was possible, because God will let nothing stand in the way of his faithfulness. He's not going to let Moses' insufficiencies And he's not going to let any level of wickedness or evil stand in the way. God lets nothing stand in the way of his faithfulness. He will be faithful and he will show compassion. So God brings this plague upon Egypt. We read about this in chapter 12. In verse 29 through 32, we see how Pharaoh responds. Let's look at verse 29 of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds, if you have said, and go and also bless me. Here we find this broken and defeated Pharaoh who realizes that he cannot oppose God, but we actually find him at the end asking for God's blessing. And so the Israelites up, and they take their stuff, and they make this mass exodus out of the land of Egypt. And this is where our story kind of stops this week. But here's what's interesting is that we still have not seen the climax of the wickedness of Pharaoh. And next week, we will see again that the, his wickedness, his meanness is not done. He is not finished exercising that, even after the death of his firstborn son. Now, what are we to do with this, this story, these plagues, this, these actions of God that, to our modern sensibilities, they, they don't seem to line up with who we think God should be? And, you know, I think it's really important that we understand that the lens through which we read this story makes such a difference in what we understand about it. Here's what I mean by that, by the lens. I want you to imagine if you put on a pair of glasses that have red lenses, what is everything going to look like when you look at it? It's going to look what? Red. It's going to look red, right? You put on some red lenses, every light around you is going to have a red tint to it. Everything that you look at is going to have this red tint to it. And the lens through which we read this story will tint the way that we understand the story. And I think this is oftentimes what people do when they come to stories like this in the Old Testament is that we, we seem to think often, many people seem to think that, that we are somehow to put God on trial and to look at his actions and we are looking at evidence, whether or not God is good or whether or not God is real or whether or not God is trustworthy. And we say, okay, this story, we see this brutal God who does mean things and therefore we cannot trust him. God is on trial and these are the evidence that, to find him guilty. But see, here's, here's the problem with that is that it assumes that God answers to us. It assumes that God somehow answers to humanity. But just think about this. I mean, if God, the almighty God, the creator God, if he answers to humanity, then he's no, he's no longer God. Like, by its very definition, if he has to answer to humanity and be held accountable by humanity, then therefore he is no longer God. And this idea of an unaccountable being with all power and all might, it scares us a little bit. We don't like that idea. 
But when we look at this story without this lens of putting God on trial, we see a different picture and we don't have to be afraid of this almighty God with all power that's not accountable to anyone. Because you see, when you see the full story, Genesis to Revelation, you see the big picture of what God is working towards, toward the redemption of all of humanity. We see this faithful and compassionate God who longs to show his people the kind of sacrifice and judgment that is necessary for them to be connected with him. It's like God is saying, listen, in order for you to be a people, and listen, humanity, in order for you to be a people that live in harmony with me, evil is going to have to be crushed and overcome. In order for us to be together evil, somebody has to do something about the evil in the world. You see, this is not how God intended it. We were created for union with God, and sin has broken that, and we see that so well in the guys like Pharaoh. This is how severe the problem of human rebellion is. God says something has to be done about it, and Pharaoh is this picture of human rebellion against God. And God knows that this kind of rebellion only responds to violence and it is only overcome by displays of power. And that's what we see playing out here. But here's what's amazing is that God ultimately is going to crush wickedness completely. He's going to wipe out evil. And he knows that violence and a display of power is the way that it has to be done. And he's not gonna do it just in one ruler, in one nation, he's going to do it in all of humanity. And we all go, oh my goodness, that sounds so terrifying. But look at what God does. He says, hey, I want to crush human rebellion. Let me show you my plan. I'm going to put on a human body. I'm going to come and walk amongst you as one of you. And hey, I know know that it's going to require some violence. So here, instead of me pouring out the violence upon all of you, come and pour your violence out upon me. He says, hey, if human rebellion needs violence to be overcome, let the violence be poured out on my own shoulders. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, crawls up on a cross and endures the violence of human rebellion upon himself. And here we see the full picture of of the Exodus. We see what it's really pointing to. You see in the Exodus, God required the death of all these firstborn sons. But we see in Jesus, he says, listen, I know it's going to require the death of a firstborn son, so let it be mine. And his only son, he sends, and his only son is crushed on a cross bearing the weight of human rebellion. And God says, listen, I can save my people, but you're going to have to kill this lamb and put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. And God says, tell you what, I will become the lamb. I will become the lamb and will let my blood shed for you be the thing that sets you apart so that death will not enter in and you do not have to be afraid of it anymore. You see, this is the full picture. Remember last week we said that that the Old Testament, things in the Old Testament are a shadow of the things to come. Everything that we see happening in here is a shadow of things that are to come and the violence required to crush human rebellion is poured out upon God at the cross. And remember, displays of power Evil and wickedness, human rebellion, it requires displays of power. And so what does God do? He says, hey, I'll take the violence and let me show you a display of power. After you have killed me, after I've been put in the grave because of human rebellion, I will display the greatest act of power the world has ever seen. I'm going to rise from the dead. And I'm going to promise that same resurrection hope to every single person. You remember the promise to Abraham, right? 
The promise was that every person on earth would be blessed because of his family. And so here comes Jesus, birthed in the line of Abraham, bringing hope beyond death to every single person that will just believe in his name. This is the God that we worship. He is the same today as he was yesterday. Many people think that Jesus was just the nice side of God and the Old Testament God was this mean side of God as though God is like this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But listen, the cross of Jesus, it is not this cosmic cover-up trying to hide God's blemishes or mistakes. No, the cross gives us the fullest picture of who God is. And the Exodus story points to the cross. Human rebellion overcome by violence and a display of power that God has taken upon himself. God is faithful. And what we need to hear in this story is that God is faithful to his promises. His faithfulness is not dependent upon our merit or how much we've earned his favor. He is faithful regardless because of his promises, because it's who he is. He is a faithful and compassionate God. And God has given us a promise that all people will be blessed on earth because of Abraham's family. Through Jesus, we all have access to eternal life beyond death. God is faithful and no amount of our insufficiencies or our weaknesses can stop him from fulfilling his faithfulness in our lives. God is faithful and no amount of evil or wickedness can stop him from carrying out his promises. This is our God. He's good. If you don't know him, if you're sitting here tonight and if you've wrestled with stories like this from the Old Testament or you've heard these kind of stories, this is the full picture of who our God is. He's been setting the stage for centuries in order that he could set up Jesus Christ as the full representation of who he is. And he loves you. He knows you. He's concerned with you. He hears the groans and cries in your life, even if you don't intend them to be a prayer. He hears them because he's faithful to the promise that he has made to humanity. He loves you. And he longs for you to know him. And he longs to know you more. Remember I said we still celebrate this Passover every week. And we have communion set up on the bar and on the tables all around the room. We have this unleavened bread and this little cup of juice And this was part of what the Passover feast was. They made their bread without yeast because the Israelites had to get out of Egypt pretty quick. And the Israelites celebrated the Passover feast with unleavened bread every year. And it was the feast that Jesus ate right before he went to the cross. And he turned it on his head and gave it this new meaning. He says, hey, this is the new covenant. This bread is my body. This cup is my blood that I'm going to voluntarily shed for you. So tonight as we come to communion, I have two simple things for you to share with one another. I just encourage you, let communion really be this communion where you talk with one another. Just, just let some of you, some of you just need to testify about the faithfulness of God in your life. So as you come to communion, get with your friends and just share where have you seen God's faithfulness in your life and celebrate. Communion doesn't always have to be reflection upon all the bad things in my heart. In fact, it is a celebration of the good things in Jesus. And so as you come to communion tonight, where have you seen God's faithfulness in your life? Share it and celebrate over communion. And I know that some of you right now are just longing. You know that you need to see the faithfulness of God and you want to see it. And if that's the case, I just encourage you to share. Where do you need to see the faithfulness of God in your life? Share it and then pray with your brothers and sisters over communion. Did you know that we can do that simultaneously? Celebrate where we've seen his faithfulness 
and then cry out where we long to see his faithfulness. We can do those together at the same time. We do that at communion every week. So I'm going to pray for us. Then I just want to invite everybody to go get communion, share with one another. If you want to pray with someone, we will have people at the Respond Banner up here. We would love to pray with you. Let us celebrate this God who is faithful. God, we love you. God, we trust you. And God, thank you that you've shown yourself to be faithful. Would you come right now as we just share these stories about where you're faithful, would you come and minister to us? Would you help us to celebrate you? And in the midst of celebrating, would you help us to encourage one another and point one another to you, Lord? God, would you come as we worship, as we pray, and as we commune, and would you let your presence, your Holy Spirit, just be here with us for the rest of our night together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.